If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn once again to the Gospel of Matthew. Our scripture reading was in Matthew 6. If you keep going on to Matthew chapter 20, you will find the text for our sermon this morning that we will be looking at. We'll be looking specifically at verses 20 to 28. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Matthew chapter 20, beginning at verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord, we ask this morning that you would attend your word. That by the power of your spirit, your word would pierce us. That we would not only hear it, but that in hearing it, we would be made doers of your word. Lord, we ask that as we study your word, we would see the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would long to be more like him. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we pick up this text in Matthew chapter 20 for the fourth and final sermon in our short series on Jesus as leaders in the church that coincides with our season of nominations for elders and deacons. And I dare say it may be that you would not have expected when I announced I was doing a series on leadership to pick this passage. I think you could have expected Acts chapter 6. You might have thought 1 Peter 5 would be a good text about elders. And certainly Titus 1 or 1 Timothy 3 about qualifications of officers would be an obvious text. But what is the pastor doing here in Matthew 20? And what is all this business about with the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that is James and John, asking Jesus for privileges for her sons? And Jesus interacting with her. What is going on here? Well, I think this makes a fitting text to conclude with. Because you see, first we looked 
at the callings of elders and deacons. What they do in 1 Peter 5 and in Acts 6. And then we looked at the character qualifications of officers in Titus chapter 1. Today we look at the mentality, that is, the mindset that a man must have if he is to lead in Christ's church. Because officers are simply to have the qualities of believers in a visible and unmistakable way. That's what makes them leaders in the church. It's not that they're different from congregants. It's just that they are expected to show in a more obvious and visible way the characteristics of a believer. And so as we look at this passage, it has application beyond officers. For each and every one of us, the mentality that we must have in the kingdom of God. But I think, again, it is specially applicable to leaders. That's why we're going to look at Matthew 20 today. Jesus is giving us a picture of the mentality that we are to have in his kingdom. And it is important for us to listen to Jesus. Because often we don't understand what the kingdom of God is about. And so this morning, I'd like to look at two very simple and direct things. First, there is a problem that we see. And then second, Jesus provides us with the solution. The problem and the solution. And it's a problem that we all face. And the solution that Jesus gives is a solution for all of us. Let's begin with the problem. The first aspect of our problem is... We don't know true greatness. We think we do, but we don't. Now, there's some context here for this passage. You know, we're not preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, but this passage doesn't come to us out of the blue. It comes at a certain specific spot in Matthew's account. And so we need to remember as we look at this text that it comes as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. He told the disciples in the last chapter, chapter 19, that they will reign with him in his kingdom, that they will sit on 12 thrones and judge Israel with him. But then he immediately follows that with a description of his death and resurrection. He does that in verses 17 through 19 of this chapter. So he begins to speak about the kingdom and victory, but then he moves very quickly to his own death and resurrection. Well, we have then this mingled context of victory and death, of glory and humility. And that should be familiar to us because that is the context in which we live. Theologians will call it the already and the not yet, that we are already having our citizenship in heaven, but we don't yet dwell with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That we already have the victory in Jesus, yet we still struggle daily against sin. 
And so this context is what is before us. And here James and John immediately jump, jump in. Now it's clear from what they say that they do not understand all that Jesus has been saying. You know the old saying, if you have to ask the question, you don't understand what's going on. That's what they're doing here. Now our text tells us that their mother is the one who comes to Jesus and asks. Their mother is most likely Salome, who is the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. So she's Jesus' aunt. And we know this from the account of the crucifixion, who she is. But the interesting thing is, if we look at the parallel passage to this in the Gospel of Mark, it's James and John that do the asking. So what we have here is probably something like, James and John begin by putting their mother up to asking the question, and then they probably are standing with her and following on with this. There's no contradiction here. But it's clear that James and John are behind this. And after all, could you blame them? If you wanted to get something from Jesus, if you wanted a blessing or a favor from Jesus, what better way to begin than by asking your mom to ask, who happens to be his aunt? It sort of takes the edge off the request. You know, who's going to turn down a request from a mother for the blessing of her sons? That's exactly what they do. So it's reasonable to assume here that they are behind what's going on here, putting her up to this question. And the question, the request, is bold. Even, we might say, prideful. Now, she didn't just ask Jesus a question. When, when we see this in the text, she asked him for something in verse 20. And this is not the word that is normally used to ask a question. This is a word for a request. And it actually carries a bit of an edge to it. The way you would say in the, in the Greek, I demand something from you, is to use this word. It's a request that she doesn't expect to be refused. She's very active about it. And, and it's not a small favor that she's asking for either, is it? It's not as if she says, you know, Jesus, I wish you would pray for us. You know, Jesus, I wish you would feed us. No, it's not even so bold as to say, as others have asked Jesus, when you enter into your kingdom, would you please let me come in with you? No, she has the boldness to ask, when you're in your kingdom, Lord, and when everyone is reigning with you, I want my sons to have the prime real estate. That's what it means. If we go back to Matthew chapter 19 and think in your mind about the 12 thrones that Jesus has said that they would sit upon, James and John say, well, you know, a throne is nice. But really, I want the throne next to Jesus. I don't want to have a throne that is sort of off in the distance or that has an obscured view. I want the courtside seats. I want to be front and center. I want to be able, as we reign, to kind of nudge Jesus and say, well, what do you think about that? We want to be in the seats of greatest blessing and authority. Now, why would they ask for this? Well, again, I think context helps us some. That you may recall that as Jesus is going about his earthly ministry, and specifically in the last 
previous chapters of Matthew, people keep coming up and asking questions of the disciples about what Jesus is doing or what he means. And it won't surprise you to know that the person they come up and ask is Peter. I mean, after all, we even think of Peter as the leader of the disciples. But James and John are in that inner circle for Jesus. James and John are the ones who go up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter. James and John are the ones who are with Jesus at important junctures of his ministry. And so you could just imagine Jesus has told them about these thrones and about reigning, and they go to each other and they say, you know what we need to do? We need to get ahead of Peter here. Because if we don't get in with Jesus quick, Peter's gonna. And we're gonna be left on the edges. So let's go. There's two of us, by the way. And we get the right hand and the left hand. We'll be the most important. Peter will have to take a secondary seat. It's perfect. Let's ask him. And so that's what they do. But I want you not to miss something else. Because we can be critical of James and John here, but there's an important fact we can't miss. Jesus has just told them that he's going to come into his kingdom and they are going to reign with him. And you know what? James and John believe him. They have no doubt. They're actually exercising strong faith. Because if you were with Jesus at this time, the last thing that you would think is he is going to be the king of the universe. He's walking around with dirty sandals and with a cloak that's probably stained and he's going through dusty streets, preaching to people who are poor and diseased. He's not acting like a king or an emperor, and yet when he tells them that this is what's going to happen, they immediately believe him, and they act on it. And so do not miss that. These are men of faith. But the problem is that they misunderstand what greatness is. They see the kingdom. They understand the kingdom is important. They want to be important in the kingdom. And Jesus, we'll see in a moment, doesn't tell them that's a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to want to be important in the kingdom of God, to be in the kingdom of God. They just don't understand what it means to be important. They think greatness in Jesus' kingdom means higher rank. More visibility. It's not enough for them to be on just one of the 12 thrones. They want to be on the visible and important ones. But before we judge them even for that, think about it. That's true of everything in the world around us. Do you want to be just on the football team? Or do you want to be the quarterback? Do you want to be just an employee of a company? Or do you want a special title and a nice office? Schools give out privileges all the time to the best of students to encourage this kind of behavior and a commitment. They'll get, for example, students now, this was unknown in my day. I'll date myself. If you are a performing student, you can exempt out of final exams. I wish they had that in my day. You know, you just keep a certain grade throughout the year, and then when exams are going on, you go on vacation. You go to the pool. You don't have to show up and take your exams. And, and schools do this because they realize that students see that privileges show that you're important, that you've worked hard. So that's what 
James and John see all around them. That's what you and I see all around us. They assumed that the people who are most committed to Jesus will be marked by higher rank and privileges. So it's not just that they're using Jesus to get to a benefit. They say, we're committed to Jesus. We've been following you for years, Lord. And we want others to know we're committed to you. And obviously that means the best seat in the house. Now, how does all of this apply to our study of leaders in the church? The truth is we can sometimes have the same mentality. That officers in the church are the really important Christians. They're the ones who've worked hard. They're the ones who deserve some credit. They deserve to be in the spotlight. It's as if we think being called to lead in Christ's church is a reward for what we have done. But Jesus tells us that this is all wrong. He says to James and John, you don't know what you're asking. And it's actually a pretty sharp rebuke in verse 25. He compares them to the Gentiles. He says, don't be like the Gentiles in what you want. Don't be like the unbelieving nations. You've missed the point. Or perhaps knowing their profession, he might say to James and John, you've missed the boat. Don't get left by the seashore. Leadership is not a reward that shows greatness. It's not an opportunity to tell other people what to do. But there's more than that. It's not just that James and John misunderstand what it means to be great in Jesus' kingdom. They also don't know the cost of the kingdom. Do you remember when Jesus said in Luke 14 that we are as his disciples to count the cost? That we are to think about what it costs to follow him. And Jesus wants to make sure that they know this cost. So he immediately, in verse 22, directs them to the cost. When they make this request for where to sit, he says, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, there's something interesting going on here in the Greek that you miss in the English. And it's not because it's a bad translation, it's just a difference in languages. Our language happens to have the exact same word everywhere except for, well, Texas and a few places. For you, one person, and you, plural. So if we were to use the Texas translation of this, Jesus is saying, y'all don't know what you're asking. It's plural. Now that's especially significant because in Matthew's account, the mother of James and John is the one asking the question. And we would expect Jesus to say to her, you, singular, don't know what you're asking for. You're the one asking the question. And so this is another hint that James and John are behind this question asking it. He's saying to both of them, you don't know what you're asking for. But there's even more than that. We know that the other disciples are all listening. We see this in verse 24. They're not just standing around. They're hearing this whole exchange. And when Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking, I think he's including them as well. Because it is not 
a stretch to believe that they would have wanted the exact same things, that they had the same thoughts. How do I say this? Well, we'll look at it a little bit more closely later, but they were indignant. That's a fancy word for they were mad. They were mad that James and John got to ask for the front seats first. They're sitting there, oh, we should have asked. I thought, I wasn't sure if this was the right time, and now they've jumped ahead of us. You see, Jesus is speaking not just to the mother, not just to James and John, but to all of the disciples, but I think even more. Jesus is speaking to you and to me. Because you see, we have similar promises in the Bible. We have promises that we will reign with Jesus. Paul tells us that in 2 Timothy 2. John recounts this in the book of Revelation, the 20th chapter, on how the saints will reign forever and ever with Jesus. And so we need to pay attention. This isn't just history. This is for our benefit as well. And it's not so easy or as simple as you might think. You see, James and John are ready for the victory party. They are ready to reign and to be in charge. But Jesus has to remind him, them of what he just said a few verses before our text. That the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. They've forgotten that. So Jesus wants to remind them that the way you come into the kingdom is through suffering. And so if Jesus is to be our example, if we are to follow Jesus, then we must not ignore his example. And his example is one of suffering. Too often we view the Christian life as one of comfort and privilege. We're shocked that we would have to suffer. We're shocked that we would possibly be mocked by the world or persecuted in any extent. It's almost a right that we have to be treated well and to have the best things. Jesus is telling you here to stop thinking that way. Stop thinking as if you are privileged because you are following the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where the great blessing of God's providence that we have in this nation actually harms us. Because we think that the smallest of slights or insults here in America is persecution. I would invite you to speak to Christian families in the Sudan who have their children kidnapped and put into slavery by Muslims. Or Christians in India who are murdered burnt at the stake, set on fire, attacked. Or Christians in China who are hounded by the state, who watches everything they do and tries to close their churches. You see, this is the normal state of affairs for the believer. And this is especially true of leaders in the church. There is a cost. Being a leader requires sacrifices of time. It requires effort. It requires being misunderstood by others. It requires having to listen to complaints about not only things you have done, but things you know you have not done. 
There's a cost involved here. But that doesn't mean it's not worth it. Jesus just tells us to remember the cost. And they did not understand Jesus. They did not know this because of their answer to Jesus. Jesus tells them about the cost. But do you see their answer? There's no question on their part. There's no hesitation. There's no need for more information. Jesus says, are you able to drink this cup? And they say, yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, we can. Now stop and think about that for a moment. When was the last time you answered a question that quickly? That committed you to something? You know, I don't answer a question that quickly. Can you get together for lunch next week? Because I have to think about it. I have to go through my calendar, make sure I don't double book, make sure I don't have a commitment to my family. I don't just pop off, yes, sure, I can handle that. And yet here Jesus tells them, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they say, absolutely. That just tells us that they don't understand the cost, what Jesus is saying. Now, of course, their later actions also show they don't understand because they abandoned Jesus at his time of need. They were terrified before the Sanhedrin. They didn't understand. This is a warning for leaders. We cannot think as leaders that we got this, that it's under control, that everything is just a piece of cake. Now, we may not say that often, but often we act like it. When we undertake decisions or ministries without bathing them in prayer, without a study of the scripture, without pleading with God, when we do that, we don't understand the cost. Well, let's now look at the solution that Jesus provides, but in reverse order. First, Jesus tells us the cost. If the problem is that James and John, and we, don't properly understand the cost of following Jesus, Jesus will tell us. If we think it will be easy to lead God's people, Jesus informs us otherwise. And so it's important for all of us, but especially leaders, to know what we're getting into. Now, as an aside here, this is another reason why we must be careful and honest with the gospel. If we tell people that if they just pray a prayer or say some words and then everything in their life will be great, we are lying to them. Believing in Jesus has a cost. That's why Jesus said that believers are to take up their cross we need to tell others and we need to believe that it is our sin that separates us from God. And that our only hope for peace and life is to run to Jesus. To trust that he will take the guilt and the punishment for our sin. And then that means that we must give up our sin. We can't nourish it. Following Jesus means renouncing a life of sin. And that is not easy. And Jesus points them to the costliest aspect of his kingdom. The cup. 
He says, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, they should have gotten the imagery of this. They must have had their minds moving a mile a minute and missed it because the cup has a definite image in the Old Testament. It is associated with the wrath of God. Isaiah, in his 51st chapter, calls the cup the bowl of God's wrath. The psalmist in Psalm 75 speaks of a cup with foaming wine that the wicked will drain. And then, of course, we had that even clearer picture in the New Testament of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, pleading with the Father that if there would be a way that this cup would pass him by, knowing indeed that he would have to drink to the full the cup of God's wrath. And so Jesus tells us that there is a cost to leadership. Do you see how the others responded to Jesus? They were indignant about what was going on here. And yet what would happen to every single one of them? They'd be martyred. And it's an interesting book ending that James would be the first who would be martyred. And then John, his brother, would be exiled and would be the last to die for his faith. But all of the apostles would die the death of a martyr. Also think about the life of Paul, another leader in the church. Was Paul's life filled with everyone doing what Paul said? After all, Paul was not only the lead pastor, he was the founding pastor. And he was not only the founding pastor, he was the I've seen Jesus directly pastor. You would think if anybody would be put on a pedestal and congregants would go by and just try to shower him with gifts, it would be Paul. But what's Paul's life like? Instead, we see that his congregations rebelled against him. They talked about him behind his back. They accused him of being weak, of not preaching a proper gospel, of not knowing God's word. They looked down on him. Over and over again we see this, perhaps most clearly in the church at Corinth that he founded. Here you have a church made up of pagan Greeks who before Paul came were worshipping the sun, the moon, the stars, and nature. And when Paul comes, they are brought to Jesus. And their response is to look down on him and to criticize him and to find fault with him. To follow Jesus means we must count the real cost. And that is especially true of leaders. The second solution that we see is that Jesus shows us what true greatness is. Now, remember the mentality that James and John had coming into this. They were clearly followers of Jesus. They had followed him for years. They had seen attacks upon Jesus from the religious and the political leaders. They had seen the fickleness of the people who came to Jesus when they wanted something and then left him afterwards. And now, as Jesus is talking about the kingdom, they are ready to step into the most important places. We can't blame them for their mentality. They believed Jesus' words. They were waiting for the kingdom. And they were not just among his disciples. Not even just among his devoted disciples. No, they were a part of the inner ring. 
Peter, James, and John, the three closest to Jesus. Everything they had known equated office with greatness. And so they believed that greatness was what they deserved to get. And as we said, it's clear the other disciples thought similarly. That's why they were indignant. They thought they were worthy of the best of places. Maybe Andrew said to himself, Hey, I'm the guy that brought Peter to Jesus. Peter wouldn't even have met Jesus unless I brought him. Maybe Matthew thought, well, I've given up more than any of you all. I was a rich tax collector. I gave up more than everybody. So by that standard, I should be the greatest. And so on and so on. But Jesus shows them a better way. He first speaks against the common wisdom of the day. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Now, the words that Jesus uses here are very vivid. The word for Lord is to dominate. Think about that word as it's used in our current culture. To dominate someone. It's a context of abuse. Of denigration. Of minimizing. That's the way leaders in the world lead. They minimize others. And don't let this exercise authority word veil its power to you too. This is a word that means to be tyrannical over, to play the tyrant. Don't think you are the first person in the world to see tyranny in the world. That is the way of the world, Jesus says. We should expect it. But Jesus' way, is to be different. And he's very emphatic about it. It shall not be so among you. And surprisingly, to be great, Jesus says, is to serve. No more than that. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. No, he must be your slave. And Jesus is intentionally using a word here that is not very nice. No one says, when I grow up, I want to be a slave. Right? Jesus is using that intentionally. Because he's describing the way that he served others, not himself. This is what Jesus tells us. William Hendrickson, the commentator, puts it this way. Jesus is saying that in the kingdom over which he reigns, Greatness is obtained by pursuing a course of action which is the exact opposite of that which is followed in the unbelieving world. Greatness in his kingdom consists of self-giving in the outpouring of self in the service to others for the glory of God. You see what Jesus is saying? The world tells you to be great, you must have other people think you're great and lord it over to them. He says to be great in the kingdom of God is to be the greatest servant. And of course, Jesus shows us this by his own example. I challenge you to find me one example in all of the Gospels in which Jesus serves his own interests. Jesus doesn't even get to eat or sleep in peace. 
Have you noticed that? He goes aside to pray and people come and they bother him and they want things out of him. He wants to stop and eat and people come up to him and say, Jesus, just please explain this to us. I mean, do you know what that's like? Parents of young children have a little idea what that's like. You know, if you're a parent of a young child, you can't find any peace in the house. You can't find even any peace in the restroom. You try to go into the restroom and the door is banging on it. I have, help me, help me. Just give me a minute. Now imagine, if you will, that you spent three years, figuratively speaking, in the restroom. And all that happened was people knocking on the door wanting to get in. That's Jesus' life. If it wouldn't have a bad taste in our mouth, we would describe Jesus as a slave. He served others. Jesus is the ultimate leader. And yet his focus was solely on the benefit of others. He is unlikely and unlike any worldly leader. He's not looking for his advantage or his benefit. And so that means, as his followers, we must follow. Our mentality must be one of putting others first, of service, not seeking our own praise. And that is hard. But that is the way of Jesus. In the life of the church, we cannot forget this important lesson from Jesus. It was a lesson that the disciples needed to learn right before Jesus went to the cross. It's a lesson that we need to learn and to live by now. For those who would be leaders, know that this is the mentality, the attitude you must have about leadership. To be great, you must be a servant, just like your master, Jesus Christ. To those who are praying for and looking for leaders, remember to look for servants. Too often we miss that as we search for the gifted, the charismatic, and the able. Jesus wants you to have leaders that imitate him. And that starts with humility and service. Let's pray.